Go ahead and open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. As we continue continue on in our series called Scattered, we look at uh, these people that Peter identifies as Christians who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire and they're facing some persecution, some difficulties, and he's writing this letter to encourage them and to challenge them to really stay on track, to hold on to the hope of the gospel that never changes even as the world around them is changing. Uh, and I think we can identify with that even today. And in this passage, he's going to talk about some building projects. Specifically, one building that, that is being built, and it's a temple. And in ancient Rome or, or Greece, they like to build temples. They build Amazing temples. Anybody ever journeyed to Greece or Rome and seen some of the, the ruins of the temples? A couple of you. I mean, I, I've seen pictures. I wish I could say I've seen them in person. Some of these are massive structures with just enormous chunks of marble or limestone that have been fitted together in impressive ways, most of which have since fallen into ruin, but some of them are still standing or at least portions of them are still standing. And it's interesting at some of these sites, especially if a, a column is toppled over or something, and you look at the underside of some of these rocks, archaeologists have identified that there are marks on them, often a number, Roman numeral, or a letter, or, or a couple of letters. And these were a designation that were put in at the quarry. So the stones were cut out of a mountainside, sometimes a few miles or, or even further away from the construction site. And the workers at the quarries had a description of what they had to cut in the shape that it needed to be in the sizes. And so at the quarry, they would shape these stones and they would mark on the stone where in the building project it was to go. So when it was shipped or carried or however they got it to the site, the builders knew this stone has to go there. Some of these temples were built in such a way that there wasn't a whole lot of stonework that went on at the site itself. Most of it was done at the quarry before it was ever brought in. And Peter uses this image in our passage today of stones that are being built together, that have been chosen for a purpose, that have been shaped for a specific place in the building. And he applies that to us as Christians and says, you have been chosen by God. You have been called through Jesus Christ. You are being shaped by the gospel to be built together into this temple, a dwelling place of the Lord. Now, remember what these people are going through. They're going through rejection by their family and friends for what they believe. They're going through rejection in their culture for saying there's only one true God, for saying this guy, Jesus, is God's son, and he died on a cross, and that's how we can be saved. And people around them are laughing at them, saying, that's ridiculous. You're a fool for believing that. They're saying, no, we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. And they're experiencing more and more rejection because of this. And I think along with that, there's discouragement. And so in this passage, as he has been doing throughout this letter of 1 Peter, Peter is saying, God knows what he's doing. And maybe you're here today and you need to hear that message. God knows what he's doing in your life. And he is shaping you and he is marking you with his number and saying, I have a place and a purpose for you. You are part of of my plan. Let me read the passage. You can follow along if you have a Bible. If you don't have one with you, there should be one in the chair in front of you somewhere. Um, underneath. 
Don't just grab across the chair in front of you. Somebody will get mad. But underneath, there should be some Bibles. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a, ro- a whole, holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So he's using this image of stones that are being built together. And that's where I want to start in verses 4 and 5. And he begins with Jesus as this living stone. As you come to him, the living stone. What does it mean that Jesus is a living stone? Well, he starts by saying, well, it's a stone that's been rejected by humans. Can you think of the ways that Jesus was rejected during his life? You know, it always amazes me when Christians and some well-known teachers and preachers and televangelists preach a message of become a Christian and everything will go well in your life. And I think, wow, that is not what I see in Jesus Christ. I mean, he was the most holy person ever. He was the very son of God. And yet he experienced rejection. In Luke chapter 4, he preaches to a crowd in his hometown. And they carry him outside the town and they want to throw him off a cliff to kill him. And he just walks right by them and gets away miraculously. In Matthew chapter 12, the religious leaders declare, now get this, these are the religious leaders of God's chosen people, and they look at Jesus and say, you can only do what you do because of a demon. Basically, they're saying, you're not the son of God, you're a representative of Satan. Talk about being rejected. The ultimate rejection of Jesus is the cross. People said, he's got to die. We've got to get rid of him. He's a a criminal, a thief. uh, He's a blasphemer. We're going to put him on the cross and put him to death. And here's where the great irony of God comes in. That what was the ultimate rejection of Jesus Christ by all humanity was the very thing that God uses for our salvation. But I wonder if when Peter writes this, there's one rejection in his mind in particular. If you know the story of Peter's life, when Jesus is being put on trial, Peter is the one that three times rejects Jesus. So this is personal for Peter when he says, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans. Peter's thinking, that was me. I was one of those who rejected him. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're sitting here going, I don't accept this at all. I don't accept Jesus Christ. Or maybe you're thinking, I used to be that way. I used to reject him. And yet God got a hold of me. So Peter introduces in this passage that Jesus is rejected by humanity. But then he says, 
But on the flip side of that, he was chosen by God. Scripture records that God chose to send Jesus, chose to send him to be born in that manger, chose to send him to suffer in our place, chose to send him to die for our sins. Before the world was ever created, God made a choice to save the world through Jesus Christ. God chose to have everything in all creation come under the authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus rules over everything. This was God's plan from the very beginning. So here we have these two seemingly contradictory things. Rejected by the world, but chosen by God. And Peter's going to apply that to us and say, in the same way, you're going to feel rejected. You're going to experience rejection in this world. People are not going to like the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what his readers were going through more and more in their culture. I think that's what we're going through as well, more and more. And he's saying, but know who you are in Jesus Christ. So what does he mean by a a living stone? Well, in the Old Testament, the centerpiece of God's relationship with his people was the tabernacle, which was a tent. It was a temporary structure. And later on, the temple, which was a permanent temple. It was large chunks of limestone and marble that were built together to be this impressive building. And there in the middle of that building, in the room called the Holy of Holies, the presence of God dwelt among his people. And there around that room, in the holy place that was the room right outside, and then the courtyard outside that, and then the the all of Israel around that. This is where the relationship between God and his people took place. And the temple, day after day after day, showed God's people what it meant to live in a relationship with him. They were reminded constantly that they were sinners, that their sin had to be dealt with. They were reminded constantly that it's only through God's means that they can be saved. They were reminded that to be the people of God, they had to live differently. They had to be unique according to God's plan for them. But here, Peter's applying this to Jesus and saying he's not building some static temple, some dead building somewhere. God's building a living temple with living people. And Jesus is the living stone. Now, by this time, Jesus has already died on the cross and he's ascended back to heaven. But Peter's saying, oh, don't don't mistake this. He's still very much alive. And on this living stone, God is building something amazing. And then he turns to us in verse 5. You also like living stones. So all that stuff he just said about Jesus, rejected yet chosen, he's now applying to us. We are also rejected. We should not be surprised at rejection. We should not wring our hands over rejection. We should not go on Facebook and loudly complain in all caps about rejection. We should say, my Savior was rejected. I will be too. But equally, he says, you are chosen. Peter started his letter in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, this is chapter 1, verse 1, to God's elect, chosen. God elected you. He chose throughout the course of history. He looked down and he made a choice, right? That's what you guys were talking about. God made a choice. Those who suffer for Jesus Christ need to cling to the sovereignty of God, that he knows what he is doing and that there is nothing 
nothing happening in our world today, just as there was nothing happening in Peter's time that was beyond the plan or out of control of God. He knows. He has chosen. And he says, we are also like living stones. I love what Pastor Al said earlier. I love this building. I love what we've done with it. I liked it before. I like it now. This building is such a tool, and every church building is such a tool to be used by the people of God for God's glory and for our purpose in this world. I don't like it, though, when Christians say, hey, let's go into the house of the Lord. This is not the house of the Lord. It's just a building. There's nothing more holy about this than your kitchen or your living room or your workplace. This is just a building. You want to know where the house of the Lord is? It's alive. And it's in you if you're saved by Jesus Christ. And it's in me. And when we come together as the church, there's the dwelling place of God on earth. And if this roof was to be ripped off tomorrow by a storm, God's temple is not changed. And wherever we get together, there it is. That's powerful. God is not here to build earthly structures in this world. It was hard for me to go through this renovation project. I'll be honest with you. And I know it was hard for some of you to put that much time. We, for those of you who are new, we, we had to shut down over half of our building for about nine months. We had to shut down a lot of our ministries for nine months. We were in the, the gym worshiping, which actually was better than I thought it would be. But it wasn't great, let's be honest. It was hard, and it was hard. The hardest thing for me was not the inconvenience of it. That was hard. The hardest thing for me was that for over nine months, our focus was on a building project in an earthly building. Now, we needed to do it, right? Like sometimes the craftsman needs to stop and sharpen their tools. The goal of his project isn't super nice tools. It's, it's what he's working on, but sometimes you've got to sharpen the tool. We needed to sharpen the tool of this building. We needed to put some focus there. But make no mistake, the point of what God is doing in this church is not this building. It's you and it's me. God knows the plan for his church. God has chosen us as his church through Jesus Christ as we are saved by Christ. He is shaping us just like stones being shaped at the quarry. He is shaping you for his purpose in his church. God puts the temple together as he sees fit. He arranges us as Christians. I believe that every local church has what they need to do the mission that God has given them. And I know that's a struggle because sometimes as churches you get together and say, oh, if we only had this. God wants you to have that. He will bring somebody there. If God wants you to have that particular spiritual gift, he will bring someone. And if he doesn't, then you have what you need. And we can get together and say, what gift do you have? How has God shaped you? Well, let's work together with that in the shaping of someone else. God has given us what we need to fulfill his purpose in this place through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This world will tell you that if you want to find your purpose and your meaning in life, you need to look inside yourself. Who are you? What makes you tick? What do you think? What are you passionate about? What makes you excited and joyous? Look inside yourself, shut out any external voice, and just look at yourself and what makes you happy. That's how this world tells us to shape or to look for our purpose. The gospel says the opposite. 
the gospel of Jesus Christ says we have to look outside of ourselves to our creator. And then as we look at the creator, we see his son, Jesus Christ, and we say it's there who Christ is and how he is shaping us. That's where I find my purpose. Not through what I want, through what he wants. And that's hard because a lot of the times what Christ wants for me is in direct contradiction to what I want for myself. And in those moments, we have to ask, who wins? Who gets to shape the stone that's going to be turned into a building? What if every stone picked up the hammer and chisel and said, I got this. No, no, I want to be this way. I'm going to chisel this part off. And then they show up at the building site and the buildings would look at, or the builders would look at these stones and go, these don't fit together at all. Everything falls over and topples over. No, when the one who knows the plan for the building shapes the stones and brings them together, we are built together for his glory. Now, these people in Peter's time were feeling out of place and rejected by their culture. The builders on the earthly building site were looking at these stones and going, that's crazy, your shape is all messed up, you're all out of whack, you should change that to be more like us. And they were being rejected. And Peter says, make no mistake, God has shaped you as living stones for his purpose. And he says in the rest of verse 5, you're being built together or being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All of these phrases together bring back the Old Testament idea of the temple. And he says, remember that? And and they knew about temples, even if they weren't Jewish. They understood some of these concepts in some of the Greek and Roman temples. He said, but that's what God is doing in your life. You are being shaped. You are being transformed. And it is in us, those saved by Jesus Christ, that the holiness of God is on display. It is in us, saved by Jesus Christ, that we show the world the way of salvation. It is in us, those saved by Jesus Christ, that God's presence is demonstrated to this world. No big deal, right? (laughs) Man, this is a high calling. We are called, I've I've been reading a a book on spiritual leadership. And he says, spiritual leadership is called this, is basically being called to something that you can never, ever hope to do on your own. It's the essence of spiritual leadership. Being a Christian is being called to something you cannot accomplish and I cannot accomplish. And then coming together to the church and be called together as the church to accomplish something we cannot accomplish. It has to be of God and it has to be through Jesus Christ. We are now the spiritual house in which God dwells. We are the holy priesthood serving as a go-between between God and these people, a demonstration of his holy presence and his salvation at work. We are the ones offering spiritual sacrifices. Don't go home and do something to your pets. That's not what he's talking about. The spiritual sacrifice we offer is our lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and lived for the glory of God. And friends, this world desperately needs to see those ongoing sacrifices in our life. And all of this is through Jesus Christ. We are not called as the church to set up our own idea of our own temple, what makes us happy, what meets all of our personal preference. It needs to be through Jesus Christ 
his identity as the Son of God and the Savior of the world. The church is not a social club. We are not here to meet my personal preferences or yours. We are not here primarily to meet the needs of our community. We are not here primarily to help people or to make them feel better. We are here to be a living demonstration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, period. One of the biggest problems, I believe, in churches today is that people are coming to church with the complete wrong idea of what a church is. So often people say, well, I'm leaving because this church hasn't met my needs. It's not doing what I want. And there's a part of that as a leader. We've got to hear that, right? Okay, are we teaching and preaching the word of God? Are we discipling them? Are we helping them? Are we shepherding them? All of that's there. That's a part of it. But we have to ask ourselves at the heart of it all, am I coming to church for me to get what I want? Or am I coming to church to be a living demonstration of the gospel with those around me? Why do you come to church? Not only that, but it's being built together. When it talks about living stones, the point of the living stone, this isn't like a statue, right? Statue, the the artist takes the stone and he chisels it away and boom, look, that one stone became something amazing. I don't do, what do you call art that's stone? I don't do that. Sculpture, there you go. I don't even know the word for it. I don't do that, okay? I think too often we look at our Christianity that way. God's shaping me and I'm beautiful and boom, and he sets me on a pedestal and goes, look at Dave, isn't he amazing? No, what Peter is saying is he shapes us and we're just a block or maybe a column or maybe the thing at the top of the column that's like super fancy. Maybe some of you are that. But we're just a piece, right? And the people in the quarry don't just shape the block and put it on a pedestal and go, what a temple. No, they bring those things together and build them together. We need each other. Christians need one another to be the living demonstration of the glory of God. We are built together. And we can't just come together and say, what do we want? What do we want this thing? What are our purposes in and of ourselves? What is the church? We have a standard. We are built on a cornerstone. In verses 6 through 8, he says that Jesus is the chosen and precious cornerstone. And he quotes right out of the Old Testament and applies this language to Jesus Christ, which Jesus had actually done. So Peter's in good company here. Jesus had applied some of these very texts to himself. Now, what is a cornerstone? We have a cornerstone uh, out on the, the entryway out here. In modern buildings, the cornerstone is almost like one of the most useless parts of the building. It's usually purely symbolic, and you put a little time capsule in there, and it's no big deal, and it's very cute and special and sort of a memorial. That's not what they were talking about. The cornerstone in these temples was usually the first block that was put down. And it was shaped specifically to be a standard by which the rest of the building would be built. So that stone would be put perfectly in place so that from there they could run all their measurements, all of their lines off of that stone. It would determine the rest of the structure. Jesus was chosen by God 
is precious to God and must be precious to us as the, the cornerstone of the church. And he says, the one who trusts in Jesus will never be put to shame. Listen to the irony here. They're being rejected by their society, rejected by their culture, and they're experiencing shame in their world because of that. Have you ever felt that way? Ever felt ashamed of being a Christian? Or, or made to feel like others are ashamed of you for being a Christian? And yet we hold on to the gospel that says, I may feel shame in this situation, but I know I am accepted by the God who created me and sent his son to die on the cross for me. Here again, we have this pattern of rejection by the world, but acceptance by God. Jesus, as the cornerstone, is rejected by so many. So many. He quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22. And he says, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then he goes on and he quotes here from Isaiah chapter 8, A stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. There are two ways to respond to Jesus Christ. You either accept him or you reject him. That's hard because in our modern world, and and really in Peter's time, they struggled with this too. You could just sort of tack Jesus onto your life, right? I can believe all these other things and then I, I kind of also believe in Jesus and he's good too. But Peter says, no, no, you either accept him or you reject him. There is no middle ground. And the difference is one of belief. Jesus is precious to those who believe in him. We look at him and we say, I get it. He's the standard. He's the cornerstone. He determines who we are. Others look at that and go, "Uh uh-uh. I'm not aligning myself with him. Who are you to tell me what to do? I get to do whatever I want. And they reject the standard of Jesus Christ. Because it doesn't fit with our personal happiness. It doesn't fit with our understandings of the way the world should operate. We look at Jesus and say, it's not fair. How can you punish people for their sins? That's not fair. How can one man die for everyone? That's not fair either. How can God become flesh? How can he be born of a woman? That doesn't make any sense. And and we just reject, reject, reject. Yet to the Christian, we look and we say, man, there's a whole lot I don't understand. But he's good. He challenges me in what I believe, and it's good. And Jesus makes me a different person, and that's good. He makes me look weird to the rest of the world, and you know what? That's good too. Because he's a better foundation, a better standard than anything we could possibly come up with. Peter develops this further by this quote from Isaiah Chapter 8, verse 14, he says, the cornerstone that is not only rejected, but now it's the stone that's causing people to stumble. And he explains what that is in the rest of verse 8. They stumble because they disobey the message. Now, understand that for Peter, obedience, disobedience is the same as belief, unbelief. Okay, He equates these two things over and over. We've talked about this throughout the book of 1 Peter. If you look at chapter 1, verse 2, He says, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Christ Jesus and sprinkled with his blood. That's his way of saying they are saved. 
They've accepted Jesus as their Savior. To believe in Jesus is to say he is the way of life and I'm going to follow him. So to Peter, obedience and belief are the same thing. They cannot be separated. Okay? So, But what I want you to hear here is he's talking about those that are saved. They are our obedient. It's not like they want to believe and then they're just struggling to obey. That's not what he's talking about here. He's saying they have trusted Jesus as their Savior. And then, of course, the opposite then. The disobedience is to reject Jesus. God has provided salvation. People are looking at Jesus and saying, I don't want it. I don't want him. I want my own way. And Peter says that is the way of disobedience. It's like the builders having this beautifully shaped, perfect square rock come in, and it's marked as the cornerstone. And the builders look at it and say, no, I want a round building. I want a tetrahedon. I don't even know what that is. I want something different, right? I don't like it. So we're not going to use that as the cornerstone. Just set it off to the side. So they set it off to the side. They're going about their work and they forget it's even there and they come along and boom, they fall flat on their face because they tripped on the rock that they set aside and rejected. How many people get so offended by the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because they've already rejected him. And then they don't like what he says about their life. I've been there. The gospel's hard. It confronts us. It confronts and challenges our sins. But then he goes on. He says at the end of verse 8, they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Oh, look at the time. This is an incredibly difficult statement that causes a lot of deep theological arguments. I would like to stay away from those arguments this morning because I think it's a black hole that I don't want to get into. And I want to point out what Peter is saying here, what he is emphasizing. Remember that Peter's readers of this letter are going through difficult times in their world. They've received Jesus Christ as their Savior. They're trying to live for Him. And because of that, they are going through difficulty and experiencing persecution. And when you go through difficulty and experience persecution, especially for believing in God, you're going to start having the question, why should I believe? Does God even know? Is He even in control of any of this? Why is my world falling apart? I mean, how many times do you think, why am I having such a bad day? I did my devotions this morning, God. I read my Bible. Shouldn't things be going well? Sometimes, yeah. Other times, no. Peter's main point in saying this is that even other people's rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ is under the sovereign control and choice of God. Nothing happens that is outside of his sovereignty. So Peter is reminding these people that are struggling, God's got this. He knows. He's in control. What Peter is not trying to answer is the question we all want to have. Wait a minute, how does that work? Why does God choose? How does he choose? Why does he choose that person, not this person? How does that work? And Peter's going, no, 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 you're missing the point. The point is to trust in God who knows, because you don't. And we all try to figure it out as if we know. God knows. 
And if we trust in him, that needs to be enough for us. We must trust him. Now, before we move on, I just, I feel the need to point out something that's missing in this passage. A shocking, glaring omission in this passage. In Matthew chapter 16, there's another reference to a rock and a foundation of a church. And Peter is digging into Scripture and bringing up these references that reference rocks and stones and foundations and cornerstones, and he's applying them to Jesus Christ. But there is one glaring omission. In Matthew chapter 16, Peter declares, you are, he says to Jesus, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, you are Peter, which means what? Rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. Here's Peter talking about how Jesus builds his church and the rock that he's building his church on. And he completely, absolutely leaves that out of it. Our friends in the Catholic Church have built a whole tradition on the idea of Peter the rock upon which the entirety of the church is built. And this is where we get the modern day popes. I believe and I think the silence in this passage tells me this, Peter would fundamentally disagree with that understanding of where the church is built. Peter would say, are you kidding me? It's not me, it's Jesus. I said he's the Messiah. That's the foundation, not me. And today as a pastor, please hear me. It's not me. I'm not the foundation of this church. It's Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, in case you missed it, the foundation of this church is not you. It's Jesus Christ. I know. Feel free to leave if you want to. We are built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. He determines what the building looks like, the shape. And I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about us, the people. He is the standard. He is the plan of salvation, the way of salvation, and the purpose of salvation. Everything we are as Christians and as the church is built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, which means he gets to decide our purpose. Briefly, let's look at verses 9 through 10. You are, God's, or you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There's so much I could explain in this, and it's good, but I want you to just look at those words. Do you wonder who you are? Do you feel like your life just doesn't matter? Do you wonder why you go through struggles and feel like everything's falling apart and it's out of control? Look at this passage. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. The greatest human value and worth and dignity is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, period. Nothing can surpass what Peter is talking about, about who you are through Jesus Christ. And in those moments that you are thinking, I'm a nobody, 
I'm feeling rejected by everything around me. What is the point? Stop and remind yourself, I am a chosen person. I am a royal priesthood, a holy nation. I am God's special possession. This wording comes right out of the Old Testament when God called the people of Israel. What what a powerful example throughout all of the Old Testament. Now, they really struggled with it, and we do too. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, For you are a holy people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of this earth to be his people, his treasured possession. And Peter uses that. He says, you now as a Christian, you are the treasured possession of God. He has chosen you. He has a purpose for you. And then look at verse 10. We'll come back to the rest of verse 9 in a second. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are not who you were. You have a completely new identity in Jesus Christ. Christians, we have got to wrestle with our identity in Jesus Christ. And we have to understand that that is the single most important thing about each and every one of us. It's not the country we live in. It's not the political party we, we follow. It's not our hobbies. It's not our home or, or our work or anything else about us. It is who we are in Jesus Christ. There was a time, if you are a Christian, there was a time that you were not under the mercy of God. Your sins were still upon you. And you were the very enemy of God. And so was I. But in Christ, God saved us. And he says, now you have received mercy. Listen to the words of Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Friends, this is your testimony. We like to share testimonies. Here's yours, if you're a Christian. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But... Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. If you are a Christian, that's your testimony. You run to that and you cling to that. When you're experiencing shame in this world and doubts about yourself, you go to the gospel of Jesus Christ and you say, that's who I am. But I need to stop here for a moment and ask you, is that who you are? Have you accepted Jesus 
as your Savior. Because if you haven't, you are not under the mercy of God. You are not a chosen person of God. You are still in your sin. You are still under the wrath of God. And I don't say that to beat you up or to punish you, but to offer you the gospel of salvation to say, here's the mercy that God wants you to have. Here's his son, Jesus Christ, that's already paid for your sins. Here's the story that could be yours. A temple being built together for the glory of God. Chosen by him. Shaped for his purpose. Called precious to him. People belonging to him. Isn't that the deepest need of each one of us? In our hearts, we say, I want to belong. I want my life to mean something. And yet sin comes in and twists it and says, great, go do your own thing. And we go do our own thing. And time after time, we say, why aren't I happy? Why is there no fulfillment? Because you will find no rest, no fulfillment, until you find it through Jesus Christ. Receive the call of mercy, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Choose to give your life to Jesus and to trust him. Finally, let's go back to the end of verse 9. What's the point of all of it? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. This, right here, is the purpose in your life if you are a Christian. And it is the collective purpose of the church to bring and display the glory of God. That's why we get together. It's one of the things as elders we talk about when we're weighing ministries and and things we want to start or maybe things we want to end. And we say, does it draw glory to God? Or have we just gotten in a rut of drawing glory to ourselves? Is this about keeping us happy? Or is this about displaying the gospel and the glory of God? We must go deep into what the gospel is and understand. Because if that's what we are to display and that's what brings glory to God, then we better know what the gospel is about. Or we're going to set up our own cornerstone, our own building, and we're going to make it look amazing. And we're going to look at the world and say, look at what we have done. And there won't be any hope for anyone in that. The church is built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ for the purpose of displaying the glory of God. Christ is our Savior. Christ defines our identity. He defines our purpose to declare His praise. And everything in the church must be measured off the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 7, you probably know the story. Foolish man builds his house on the Sand, wise man builds his house on the rock. Two building programs. Effort that goes in. This is what I want. This is how I'm going to do it. And one of them, like easy, slap some wood together, throw it on the sand, no big deal. All the neighbors say, hey, you did that so quickly and under budget. That was phenomenal. How beautiful it is. They say, yeah, look at me. Meanwhile, the other guy's still trying to build his foundation. He's trying to tie it into the rock, which is much harder. But what happens? Storms come. The wind whips up. The streams and the floodwaters rise and rush against the houses. One building project is wiped out. One building project stands. 
What are you built on? What are we as a church built on? Because the winds and the waves are there. And the streams of our culture are rising. So many churches are giving up the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're building their purpose on the sand. And it won't last. In Christ, we are chosen. In Christ, we are accepted. In Christ, we are shaped and called to a purpose. And in the rest of this letter, Peter's going to talk about what it means to live as the holy temple, the chosen, living, shaped stones of Jesus Christ, shaped and called together and built together by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not going to be easy. It's going to challenge what we want as we live for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, the good news that salvation is through his death and his resurrection, would shape everything that we do and everything that we are. May we lay down our personal preferences, our own ideas, make them submissive to your word and your word alone. May our sole purpose be to accept and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world even as the world looks at us and says, you're crazy. Even as the world looks at us and rejects us. Even as we feel ashamed, even of what we believe at times. May we stop and look at what you say about us. You have chosen us. We are precious to you. You have a purpose to display your glory, even in us and to use us to be a demonstration of the gospel in this world. God, I find so much encouragement in that, and I pray this morning for anyone who is not a Christian that is here. May they hear that and say, I want that. I've been longing for that. I pray that they would turn to your son, Jesus, and say, yes, you are my Savior. You are my King. I don't want to just live my way anymore. I want to trust you and follow you. And may the rest of us gather around and say, welcome. You're a living stone being shaped for a purpose. And we're in this together for the glory of God through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.